Hello and welcome to World Canvas from the University of Iowa's International Programs. We're coming to you this afternoon from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum on the campus of the University of Iowa. Very happy to have you all with us today. On tonight's program, we'll be joined by an expert panel of guests to discuss the rise of public opinion in China. Public opinion, as we know, is inevitably linked with political action and political change in 21st century America. But the connection between public opinion and mass political action, or even institutional change, is not limited to the US or to Western democracies. On the contrary, it's an increasingly important and influential factor globally. In this first part of our four-part series, we'll discuss public opinion and political reform with three influential political scientists from China. To my left is Mr. Dali Yang, professor of political science and faculty director at the University of Chicago Center in Beijing. Thank you for being here, Professor Yang. My pleasure. And next to him is Professor Li Li Chang, professor of political science and director of the Institute of Social Science Survey at Peking University. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. And our third guest is Professor Yu Keping, Professor of Political Science and the Director of the Center for Chinese Government Innovation at Peking University. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. And we have a translator with us this evening as well. Graduate student, I think, in the Department of Political Science here at the University of Iowa, Ms. Shui Jin. So thank you for being with us. Thank you. So uh, I have to throw out the first question, and any of you can jump in to take it, but perhaps I'll just start with you, Professor Yang, and ask you to tell us a little bit about how public opinion affects life in today's China. Well, in many ways, uh, if we think back uh, to 30 years ago when China was just starting to reform, it was a country with a very small number of newspapers. All information generally flowed from up to uh, the bottom. Uh, there was actually very little public opinion. In fact, anyone who is saying anything actually deviant could end up in big political trouble. Mm -hmm. Today, this is a nation of smartphones, of the internet, of uh, microblogging. Uh, the economy has diversified. Young people could watch, could, uh, uh, could watch US TV essentially on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So this is a remarkably different country. But at the same time, they also have interest to pursue. They have uh, a lot of complaints, whether it's about the environment or other issues. And they want their views to be known. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, actually, public opinion has become a, a part of the uh, Chinese political fabric. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, officials pay attention, especially because very often local officials are held accountable for local stability. So if something goes wrong, then they could take the blame. And therefore, they actually increasingly mm -hmm. are paying attention to the aggregations in particular of public opinion mm -hmm. in this regard. Mm -hmm. And would you say, China, of course, is such a huge country, so, so many people, so many regions. Would you say that um, the uh, responsiveness to public opinion varies from one part of the country to another? What do you think, Professor Li? Uh, yes, I think as, uh, as uh, Professor Yang has indicated, there has been uh, increasingly uh, a strong development of public opinions, and of course, as a, uh, through some more formal channels and also informal channels. And uh, in terms of formal channels, and uh, newspapers, magazines, and uh, now we have various ownerships of newspapers, magazines, and also various uh, professional workers in these areas. They have uh, plural ideas. And, uh, and also, in addition to that, the recent development of uh, uh, internet, 
event blogs and uh, Twitter. In the Chinese, we call it Weibo, but in fact, it's Twitter. And also, the uh, we talk, so all those things have produced and uh, huge volumes of uh, public opinions about the Chinese public policy and also sometimes about politics. Of course, the, the degree of involvement are quite different. The young peoples and the people who have uh, university graduate degrees may have been more active in using these kind of tools to express their ideas, particularly young people in the cities. In the countryside, probably the old peoples are more passive in this regard. And uh, what have you seen happen over the last, um, say, 20 years um, in terms of the opening of the press, the sort of official, uh, not official, but the, what should I say, the more um, um, uh, business kind of organized forms of, of communication with the public, something like a, a China Daily or some of the other newspapers on the one hand, and then social media coming along on the other. Uh, what, what have you um, seen happen uh, with the kind of conversation that takes place about, about public activities, whether it's the need for um, uh, addressing pollution concerns or whether it's uh, a complaint about one's own university. Um, have you been surprised by how much, uh, how vocal the uh, Chinese public is? so apparently, China has um, this huge economic growth in the past 20 years. But besides that, Chinese society has gone through uh, many more important changes. One of them is the, um, so the, development of civil society and the openness um, in the media. Uh,中国改革开放前呢,中国的社会是高度一体化的,就是政治,经济,国家与社会不分的。那么经过这个三十多年的改革呢,这个社会的结构呢,开始分化。社会呢,就是由三个相对独立的系统呢,开始形成。
So especially we need to uh, pay attention to the internet, the development of internet in China, and people who are active in internet, the number of people who are active in internet has, uh, has over, has, um, has been over like six, uh, six, uh, 60 million. 600 million. Oh, 600 million, sorry, yeah. my mistake. Yeah, yeah, huge numbers. And we see here in our own country that there's a great deal of activity on the internet. Some of it seems to be serious, you know, political and social discourse, and some of it is just random frustration or um, maybe anger and, and whatnot. Um, I suspect the same dynamics are at play in China, uh, that, that some of the um, some serious concerns about a uh, quest for political change would be expressed in microblogs and in other um, forms on the internet. But um, is, is there, we know that what we think of as Facebook is not the same Facebook that you use in China. You have, you have Renren, you have Weibo, you have very active social media uh, sites. But um, uh, do you, is there a great deal of government oversight over those platforms? Well, I think the interesting issue in China is there are limits to organized political activity, especially in terms of if you want to act against the government, even if you want, for example, to organize a group of people to uh, do a protest, the law says you have to get approval, but rarely do they get approval. Mm -hmm. Now, there is a thing, however, about the emergence of the microblogging services, so you know, Weibo and WeChat is with the Weibo, essentially have freedom of opinion because mm -hmm. people can express what they believe in. They very often are very heavily engaged. Many people are very dedicated to spreading ide ideas of the need for participation, mm -hmm. of democracy, of accountability, and transparency. And mm -hmm. then there is the saying that with the emergence of the WeChat, which actually is not just limited to China, it's increasingly being spread ar around the world. In fact, it's gaining uh, uh, users around the world. Uh, essentially, it's a private, almost like a Facebook-like, that you yeah. can sign up for friends, mm -hmm. and it, immediately hundreds of people could mm -hmm. get organized in many yeah. ways. So that's the way how those services already are reshaping the mm -hmm. relationship between the state and society. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we have seen in um, certain parts of the world, and we could use some examples in the United States that some of us are familiar with, but if you think about what happened in the Middle East, what happened in Egypt, various places, uh, you know, Syria, Iran, where a number of um, very important major political actions were undertaken, really um, uh, with uh, the, the very great... Um, uh, impact of social media. People were able to say, we will meet at this corner at this time on this date, and, and then suddenly the crowds emerge. It's a different world than five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and um, I think we hear our politicians in this country question, what will all of this mean? Because uh, um, communication happens in an instant, and crowds can appear in an instant. Certainly that would be true in China as well. Is there concern about social media activity as far as you're aware uh, within governmental circles, Professor Li? Uh, okay, I think so. I think it's, uh, uh, of course, with this uh, new kind of uh, social medias, the information uh, pass uh, goes very fast, and it's uh, not uh, uh, quite easy to control, 
I think particularly in the case of China, if we are familiar with the internet, microblog, and all those Weibo, the discussion about the social and the political issues probably are, uh, occupies much more significant places than, for instance, in the US. If we, uh, I, I sometimes happen to check the newspapers, uh, microblogs in the US newspapers, and, uh, and not that many, because the, the formal uh, newspapers are more open, so the, the microblogs uh, does not play that significant role in uh, transforming the information. But in China, I think the, this kind of microblogs and uh, Weibo become, have become uh, uh, one of the most important channels for information flow, and particularly for the information in social and political affairs. Mm -hmm. It's, of course, it's, uh, quite important, and also because it's an important political fact, of course, the people, pay, including leadership, pay much more attention. However, I think it's the, uh, the, the, there's some uh, differences with the uh, Middle East. For I think the, the, the information flow alone does not, uh, uh, is not enough to cause a political, uh, uh, this kind of a, uh, revolt. Uh, the, one of the most important factors for the Middle East uh, is the the economic situation, particularly the unemployment of the young people, university graduates, sometimes uh, I read as it has reached one, roughly 40% of the young university graduates did not find a job. Uh, this, of course, is not the situation in China, and with the population increase becomes slower, the, uh, more or less, I think, the employment situation, particularly for the young people, are not that bad. It's quite a, a good. So I don't, I myself do not have uh, that much concern. I don't know whether other people have uh, this uh, major concern. I, I see the information uh, flow as quite normal. As it does, as this alone may not uh, uh, result in some uh, big political Mm-hmm. Well, um, there's a survey <laughs> tool, a survey organization in the United States, many of us uh, know with Gallup Poll, these kinds of big polling organizations. Do you have similar organizations in China that, that do public opinion polling? Well, I think uh, in this case, I better let uh, 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 <laughs> uh, Professor Lee is head of uh, one of the major organizations at Peking University uh -huh. that does uh, various surveys. They have been, I have been in touch uh, in collaboration with a number of those entities at leading universities. Many of them uh, are represented here. Yeah. So there has been a burgeoning of interest in engaging public opinion mm -hmm. on various issues of public mm -hmm. concern. Some of those actually are conducted for academic purposes to enable scholars and policymakers to use the, make use of the data to better understand mm -hmm. what's, what's going on. But another phenomenon that's really been interesting is private polls. Very often, uh, they, are not, they are really done by commercial polling organizations, very often on behalf of local governments, in order to find out how the people feel about them. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, you don't have 
the kind of competitive elections, yet local officials are very concerned about how the public uh, 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 sort of think of them, of their mm -hmm. performance. Mm -hmm. In many ways, actually, it's a, it's a very interesting situation in terms of this dynamic between the officials and the, uh, and the people. Mm -hmm. What are some of the main um, issues that polling would be uh, done on? What would be some of the principal issues you would uh, ask uh, your, uh, the people being polled to respond to? My institute uh, uh, is mainly uh, conducting some surveys and uh, for the long, long digital surveys on the basic social, economic, uh, educational, and uh, all those kind of issues. There's uh, some basic uh, uh, facts about the society, about the population, family, uh, education, employment, income, among others, and we have uh, quite a limited uh, uh, political survey. I think uh, Professor Yu probably uh, has uh, done <laughs> more than, this, than my institute in terms of a survey on public opinions. Mm-hmm.呃，我是这些年来，因为中国这个民意啊，它越来越重要，影响越来越大，所以呢，对民意的这些调查机构呢，呃，就是也非常的多。总的说来呢，现在有三个系统在做这种民意的呃这个测评和调查。So public opinion has becoming more and more important in China nowadays, and there are three major different kinds of organization. three different kinds of systems of organizations are doing doing public opinion surveys. 呃，第一个系统应当是最强大的系统。就是官方的民调系统，从中央政府一直到地方，就最基层的村和社区，有我们叫有一个就是城市和乡村的这个调查队，就是这是非常官方的一个民调系统。So the most powerful system is the official system, the government system, uh, from the central government to the local government, all the way down to the lowest level of administration. Um, Units like in the villages and in the neighborhoods in the cities, mm -hmm. um, the government have officials. They are doing these public opinion surveys. The second system is the industry system. Industry system has many industrial research companies. Uh, in the The second system is just business companies. So there are many business companies. They do uh, public opinion surveys, and one of them, uh, which is probably the most famous one, is called Zero Point Company. And the third one is called uh, Academic System. So the universities and other academic organizations, they are also doing public opinion surveys. 我们现在，我我自己看，我觉得问题是这些民调机构这些年来发展的很快，太多了，不规范。我们需要更多的一些这个呃规范和制度来规范这些民调机构。So personally speaking, we have many too many like we have a huge number of organizations doing public opinion surveys right now, and the problem is we don't have regulations over this system and over these organizations. So probably we need some regulations. 
专业化程度不够，调这种民调的方法就是也不太科学，所以有的时候你去看那些民调的结果，你会发现呢，同样一个呃问题，就是不同的民调机构会做出截然不同的甚至相反的这样的结果。So. And also, the level of professionalization among these different organizations are different, and they need to improve their professionalization. Uh, and also, sometimes the method, the methodology, is not scientific enough. So, for a uh, for one question, different organizations can provide totally different answers. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Professor Yang, you were going to say something. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things about the U.S. is our government, uh, uh, for example, the Bureau of Labor Statistics or the Bureau of the Census, they are relatively held at arm's length. They independently conduct their work. But even then, you find, for example, the Federal Reserve System uh, employing, using outside organizations to help yeah. them gather data to ensure the accuracy of the statistics. Because very often people wonder, you know, if the only source of information is the government, there is yeah. always a limit to the accuracy, to the reliability of such data. Mm -hmm. It's always useful to get a different perspective, whether it's the economy or public opinion for that matter. The trend in China is going in this direction as well. The government has own, its own statistical system, but increasingly, for example, the People's Bank of China has supported a uh, survey of uh, household finance, and there are a variety of academic surveys that complement, that offer different perspectives. And at the same time, there are businesses, for example, the HSBC Bank has conducted a survey, uh, uh, for example, on um, business sentiments mm -hmm. and so on. And those mm -hmm. are very useful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this will be a growing field. This will continue, yes, continue to grow. Yes. Well, I'm sorry to say that our time for this discussion has come to an end, but I want to say thank you so much to Dali Yang next to me here, to Li Chang, thank you, and to Mr. Yu Keping, <laughs> thank you, and then also to our translator, Shuai Jin, thank you so much. And um, you have been listening to the first segment of a four-part series on the rise of Chinese public opinion. Please join us next week at this same time for part two of the series. All World Canvas programming is available on the Hawkeye Network, on iTunes, KRUI, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. I'm Joan Kerr, and for International Programs at the University of Iowa, thank you very much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Good night. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. World Canvas is coming to you from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Building, the Old Capitol Museum here on the campus of the University of Iowa, and we're happy to have you with us. This program is part two of a four-part series on the rise of public opinion in China. We're investigating the influence of public opinion on political reform, political trust, foreign policy, and public discourse, especially through social media. The focus of tonight's discussion is public opinion and political trust. Joining me on stage are three experts in the field of Chinese public opinion research. Wenfang Tang, professor of political science and director of undergraduate studies here at the University of Iowa is just to my left. Hi, Wenfang. Thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. Mm -hmm, thank you. Bruce Dixon is uh, next, and he's professor of political science and international affairs at George Washington University. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. And uh, here at the far end is Melanie Mannion, who is a professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Thank you for being here.
Happy to be here. Thanks so much. So first, Wenfang, I'm going to throw the question to you. I think when we talk about political trust, we're talking about trust in the system. At least that's the way I imagine it. So should we assume that with greater political openness in China and greater participation by the masses, uh, there's been an increase in political trust? Uh, yes. Uh, it, that, that's one thing. If you uh, look at public opinion survey data, that uh, it shows consistently that the uh, trust, particularly of the central government in China, is uh, very high, um, about 75 percent. Uh, wow. But one interesting thing about this is uh, uh, there's a lower, a lot lower trust of the local government. So in China, you see this uh, gap between trust in central government and trust in local government. Isn't that funny? In our present state here in the United States, it's pretty much the reverse, right, isn't it? Right. I would expect the opposite, yeah. Yeah, yeah, huh. And so how is public opinion surveyed in China? Maybe I'll ask you, Bruce, to fill us in on that. Well, there's a number of different ways that public opinion is, is surveyed in the country, uh, primarily through different academic institutions. Most major universities in China have uh, survey research centers um, and they routinely uh, survey public opinion on a wide variety of issues, sometimes just taking the temperature, the mood of the country, sometimes looking at very specific kinds of questions. Uh, those are ones that get, get published and we know about. There's commercial operations like Horizon that also do a lot of public opinion surveys. Uh, the government also routinely surveys public opinion, but those are usually internal surveys, uh, and the results of those are usually not, not publicized. Well, as academics, you're all very much involved in this area, and um, uh, whether academic surveys or reviewing government uh, public opinion polling, um, you have to sort of make sense of all of it or figure out what, what it all means. Give me a sense of what a, a day in, in your work is like, Melanie, when you're trying to figure out what's happening now in China. Um, well, we obviously not only use uh, the data that we ourselves have gathered and the data that uh, our Chinese colleagues have gathered. So we do rely very much on um, these sorts of quantitative data and try to make sense of it. But in trying to make sense of it, it's very important for us to keep track of the changing context in China because things are changing very rapidly. We have to keep track of um, current, current affairs and uh, I think all of us uh, do that. We keep track of current affairs. And for those of us studying Chinese politics, we have a um, remarkable institution uh, available to us. We have a, uh, our own chat group of uh, specialists in Chinese politics. And um, we exchange uh, views uh, on that and uh, uh, you know, de de develop a, a cumulative knowledge uh, on, uh, on current events in that way. Mm -hmm. If I may come back yeah. to the trust yeah. issue, um, uh, people, the, the first question people always ask is, uh, how do you know they're telling <laughs> you the truth? Uh, that, that's mm -hmm. the question we, as uh, scholars of public opinion, mm -hmm. often have to address. So um, we've been uh, uh, researching on, on the reliability of political trust in China. Um, we look at different reasons why uh, trust is so high in China. Uh, one obvious answer would be economic reform, right? economic growth, mm -hmm. uh, improvement of living standards. When people are uh, living a better life, of course, they, they show more trust and support of the government. Uh, that, that might be true, but there's another reason people frequently uh, mention 
that is the cultural value. There's a China has been a traditionally hierarchically structured society, so uh, people would expect to, to show greater respect for authority, so maybe that's another reason for trust. But um, in, in, in my research, I uh, find that uh, something more interesting is actually uh, a big reason for trust is uh, government responsiveness. And, and people feel when government responds to public demand, then you see a very um, uh, direct impact of uh, rising political support. Can, can you give an example of, uh, of an occasion, of an instance of a, of a building public outcry that really has caused a um, quick, a fairly immediate response from the sure, government? Sure. Um, if you uh, read the media, uh, Western media, you see high-profile protests in China, many of them. Just in the last couple of years, you see Shifang. Uh, I think there's just so many different cases, high-profile cases. Mm -hmm protesting against local environmental projects, uh -huh. protesting against local governmental land uh, seizure, uh, then some economic uh, project, local economic project. So the, the, the typical um, process of this protest is uh, people would go on street, protest against the local government, mm -hmm. and then the central government would send someone here, investigate the case, and then they would uh, uh, fire the local officials and mm -hmm. compensate local residents. Mm -hmm. So uh, that process, um, actually, maybe people wouldn't think too highly of the local governments, but uh, as a result, yeah. they think more highly of the central government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Popular protest now about particular issues mm -hmm. is is a form of political participation in China. And um, it's something people now take for granted, aren't, aren't so much afraid to express their views, uh, to go out on the streets and demand yeah. things, when it has to do with specific policy issues. Right, but are, would there be certain issues that might cause someone to, to really think, I am gonna get into big trouble if I show my face at this, at this protest, there would be some but it's, it's often the case that after you have these large-scale protests, even when the government intervenes and sort of meets the demands of protesters, mm -hmm. there's often some retaliation against the leaders of the protest, or people are identified, chosen as leaders in order to be punished. There's really ambivalence that the government has. On the one hand, they, they find it useful to get this information that comes from protests, mm -hmm. but they don't want it to be a precedent for other people in other communities with similar grievances to do the same thing. So it's, it's almost a bit of a, uh, a tug of war. On the one hand, they want to address the legitimate concerns that get raised, mm -hmm. but they don't want similar demands being raised elsewhere. Uh, there's been rising protests around the country that often do get attention, and at least the material demands get made. Back wages get paid. Mm -hmm. uh, if land has been confiscated without compensation, they'll pay some compensation. Uh, but when there's other, if it's just straight, material demands, you're usually in safe ground. If you're raising more political demands, not just we want higher wages, but we right. want our own union to negotiate for us, right. now you've crossed over into political demand, mm -hmm. and that's usually unacceptable. Right, and something like a protest for more freedom of expression, or, or exactly. something like that would perhaps not go down so well. 
Yeah. And you see China, there's uh, two trends going on. You see very high political trust, right? Mm -hmm. Then you see the rising number of protests. Yeah. And uh, these things, uh, two things are going on at the same time. Mm -hmm. So if you see more protests, then you will naturally expect low trust of the government. Mm -hmm. But why these two things are going on at the same time, I think that's a very interesting phenomenon. Yeah. Um, I think one, one reason, part of my reason, is uh, this central-local government difference. You know, the central government uses local government to boost its own image. Mm -hmm. So that, that's why you see a lot of protests and people are encouraged to protest against the local government. As a result, the central government trust uh, improves. Yeah. <laughs> so you have all spent a lot of time studying China. You, of course, grew up in China and came here for your um, professional career. But um, in these last 30 years, uh, you mentioned that you had been in China in 1989. What, what is the difference you feel, both as a scholar and just uh, an individual uh, in China? Uh, is there a, a tangible difference in the way people talk about their lives? Uh, yes. And um, actually, Tang Wenfeng and I were uh, schoolmates. Oh. in uh, Peking <laughs> University in 78 to 80. So um, we go back a long way. And uh, so not just 89, but um, over these 35 years, huge differences. Um, I, I just would never have imagined the China I see today. Uh, in terms of, let me just think about particular events, and you were asking about responsiveness and public participation. So June 89 was certainly an example, um, very different from the kinds of protests we've been talking about just now, um, where you know, there, were, there were days when there were a million people on the square. Um, and um, certainly, uh, no doubt in my mind, that the uh, government action uh, in June 89 was um, not consistent with what people were asking for in the streets. And yet, at the same time, after 89, we saw big changes. Um, we did see government responsiveness. In other words, they were very clear that they didn't want that again. So they did several things. One, of course, they boosted the um, military budget. But they also took actions, a, prevent, a preemptive action. So for example, the largest anti-corruption campaign in China took place after June 8. It took place in August. September 89. So they had an understanding, uh, and Deng Xiaoping himself said, if we don't take action, if we don't shoot a few people, if we don't execute a few of these officials, uh, the people won't be satisfied. So there was a really a clear recognition that the sorts of issues that people were concerned about and um, protesting about on the street were a danger for the regime. And one of the things we have seen this regime do is take preemptive measures um, to try to deal with these uh, sorts of issues. And then, of course, the big story of China is an economic story. Yeah. And, and, and um, uh, that, again, uh, is something I, I, I could never have imagined. And I'm sure Tang uh, Wenfang, my, my, my classmate, would never have imagined either in uh, 78 or 80. I, I do remember in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, classmates with Melanie and some other Western foreign exchange students on campus at Peking University, we were looking after them. Oh, those people are so rich. 
but but now today in Iowa City, I was talking to an Iowa City BMW dealer. He told me he had three Chinese student customers already. So so the it seems like there's a lot of change over the 30 years. Yeah, that, that's an interesting thing for me to, to I, I'd like to ask you to explain that to me a little bit. How this increasing um, sense of well-being, maybe the place in the world of China as a nation, um, um, on the one hand, obviously that's, that's good for Chinese people, for Chinese business and so on. Um, why does that encourage the government to give people a little more, a little more freedom to say what they want to say or, or protest? I mean, why do those things go together? Uh, well, th this goes back to uh, uh, Professor Inglehart, who is a, a, a keynote speaker in our today's uh, conference. And he mentioned modernization. Uh, modernization would uh, increase, um, uh, change people's values, and it would uh, make people try to uh, be more aware of their political rights. One survival is no longer a. a mm -hmm. Concern, so people naturally demand more say, yeah. and and I think authoritarian regimes uh, find it more difficult to rule without giving people more say because everything is so mm -hmm. technologically connected with each other. They have to rely on uh, experts to rule mm -hmm. rather than just sitting there making their own decision. Mm -hmm. Well, and then of course with all of the um, Asian students coming to, to not only U.S. universities, but having educations all around the world, and then many returning to China. That, I imagine that exposure to many different cultures and different ways to do things, as, as is true when our students go to other countries, they come back with new uh, ways to look at the world. I suspect the same thing happens with Chinese students who are studying under you at George Washington University. I think it's been a real, real mixed bag in terms of experience and, and lessons they have and whether they take them back to China or not. The, it used to be an assumption by within the U.S. government that if you wanted to promote change within China, you would encourage more Chinese to come to U.S. for education, sort of get infected with the democratic bug, and then go back to China. Uh, what often happens is that some people choose, many people choose to stay and not go back. Uh, the people who do get, go back were often disenchanted with their experience, that they were never fully integrated, um, uh, faced some degree of, of, of bias, perhaps. Uh, so when they go back, it's not with warm and fuzzy feelings about, about the United States. Um, what we're now seeing is a much wider range of students coming from China. It used to be just truly the best and brightest that were coming, and, and they had government support and, and uh, some type of vetting process. Now there's so many people who can afford to send their own kids abroad for education, for high school as well as undergrad and graduate education, uh, that we're now getting to see a much wider range of people that are coming here. Um, still many of them choose to stay in the United States at least for a short period of time um, to work uh, before going back to China. In some cases choose not to go back at all. And, and so earlier you mentioned this traditional society, the feeling that there was respect for authority and so on, that is a long-standing tradition in Chinese culture. Do you think that with a younger generation, um, this, this group coming through now, do you see that as being diminished in any way, or would you expect it to hold true as it has? Uh, in a way, yes, of course. I mean, these people are more uh, 
um, uh, modernized or more westernized, and they, they naturally would um, be more independent and, and uh, less traditional. Um, but but I think there's something else is also going on in Chinese society. You know, you have all these changes with economic growth and modernization, but but China still is in in some way uh, very different from Western society. Mm -hmm. So even with this modernization, I think there will still be some Chinese characteristics, including Chinese tradition. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, and I understand at this most recent uh, meeting, uh, which uh, uh, Xi Jinping spoke about perhaps uh, no longer thinking that we're in the American sphere or something. You would remember the phrase better than I, but, but um, President Obama, of course, couldn't go because of problems here at home. And, um, uh, it was a natural opportunity for the leader of China to say, you know, maybe Asia doesn't need America quite as much as America thinks uh, it does. It, it, do you have any sense of this in the, the research you're doing? Is, is this something that uh, Chinese people are, are thinking, that America is sort of not what they're dreaming of? There's sort of like two, two different levels. On the one hand, there is sort of resentment toward American policy and what the American government does, and a general notion that the U.S. is sort of resisting China's rise. Um, at the same time, uh, a strong interest in American culture and, and at a more societal level. Uh, the U.S. in some ways is both the most respected and the most disliked country, but at different levels, one's more societal, one's more political and governmental. Hello and welcome to World Campus from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr and World Campus is coming to you from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum on the campus of the University of Iowa. Very happy to have you all with us. This program is part three of a four-part series on the rise of public opinion in China. We're investigating the influence of public opinion on political reform, political trust, foreign policy, and public discourse. Earlier segments of the series have addressed political reform and political trust. Tonight, we're going to look at the interplay between public opinion and foreign policy. We have an expert panel of guests to shed light on this very interesting topic, and they are next to me here. Peter Gries, Professor of International and Area Studies at the University of Oklahoma. Thank you, Peter, for being here. Thank you for having me. Oh, pleasure. Next to him, Brian Lai. Hi, Brian. Hi. Brian is an Associate Professor of Political Science here at the University of Iowa. And at the far end, we have Ning Zhang, Associate Professor of Political Science at the California Polytechnic State University, San Luis Obispo. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Brian, I think I'll start with you. We've done these talks before. And, and uh, so I think I'll throw the first question, which is just very, very basic. But how does public opinion affect foreign policy in China? That's a good question, because actually in our scholarship we get that a lot. People talk about since China is not a democracy, does public opinion really have an impact? And it does. I think in a lot of the earlier segments that people, hopefully people have watched previously, uh, I mean, in one way, I mean, we know the Chinese government does take these internal polls to get a sense of the, you know, what people are thinking and that influences Chinese decision making. In another sense, I mean, in a broader sense, Chinese public opinion sort of provides a base level for the government to think about, uh, in some ways, sort of the two functions. One is it can help the government mobilize support in some senses, but they also have to be careful in terms of uh, a sort of an over-mobilization that can sort of um, make their own decisions or actions with other governments difficult. So we saw this example in sort of anti-Japanese rallies that occurred 
uh, in which the Chinese government sort of, you know, in some senses, it produced nationalism in, for China, but also created a danger of creating too much anti-Japanese sentiment given uh, China's commercial relations with Japan. Mm -hmm. I think I'd, I'd add um, that it is indeed, I agree with Brian very much, that I think the natural tendency for an American is to see, to see the Chinese public opinion as a contradiction in terms because Chinese don't vote. And I think we assume that the reason why politicians pay attention to public opinion is because they're worried about being booted out of office. That's not the concern in China. Instead, um, the argument that I make is that the, the reason why the Chinese government um, cares about nationalist uh, opinion is because the Chinese Communist Party has staked its claim to legitimacy to the right to rule China ever since 1949, in large part on a nationalist claim. Um, Mao Zedong is, is widely remembered in China uh, on the founding of the People's Republic in 1949, not for getting up and, and saying, workers of the world unite, or some communist slogan. What he's remembered for is saying, China has stood up. And what he's referring to is China standing up against uh, the forces of Western and Japanese imperialism that were seen to have uh, oppressed and exploited China for a century. And so the Chinese Communist Party, ironically, has been staking its claim to legitimacy, its claim to a right to rule on the basis of nationalism um, for 60 years now or more. And as a result, the government has to be responsive on this issue because it's its, its own issue. Yeah. And so the people can speak back using the, the language of nationalism. So that's why the state plays, the, the, the Communist Party pays a lot of attention to popular nationalist opinion, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I agree with bo uh, both of my colleagues here. I, I think we need to really disaggregate de de the concept of na uh, nationalism. Uh, I, I just did a, re a recent study of online comments on China-Japan relations uh, that have been po posted uh, you know, in 2012 to, uh, and 2013. And a lot of those comments were prompted by the re uh, recent territorial disputes on the Diaoyu Islands. Now, when we analyze the claims that these people make, you know, the points they try to make, uh, if you read New York Times, you would think, you know, everybody want, 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 wants to challenge Japan and so forth and so on. Actually, a larger number of the points that are made by these people are actually saying, well, our government is not dealing with this well enough, you know? So I think this, this nationalistic reaction is in some sense a lar larger result of, uh, of, of, China, of the, of the self-reflective sort of understanding and view of the Chinese themselves. You know? And with the inflow of information and, and you know, internet, television, and uh, a more and more open communication um, system worldwide, the Chinese public is becoming more and more actively engaged in assessing their own position in the world. Yeah. So, so it, it really truly is a multifaceted phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, in, in terms of um, uh, television, for example, in, in China, mass television, and I know there are many, many channels, um, are there a lot of talking head shows, a lot of talk shows about the news, people presenting various sides as we have on cable news channels here. Is that kind of polemic uh, on TV all the time for people to pay attention to? Why are you both <laughs> looking at <laughs> uh, You know, yeah, 
I, I think we can probably all comment on this. Um, my, my recent vi visits, to, during my recent visits to China, I, I, I did notice many of the uh, TV shows and, and both in politics and social affairs and cultural affairs and, and, and entertainment, you know, dating shows. And a lot of the formats and contents and so forth and so on of those shows, uh, you, you know, are uh, sort of following the model uh, of the of the uh, uh, American television, so a lot of the times you do see different um, you know viewpoints being uh, presented to each other. You know, different people with different ideas brought together at the same table and argue with each other. Uh, you know, I I remember watching this debate really when the Copenhagen summit meeting was on. I think it was at the end of uh, 2009 somewhere there, and you know, the, the debate I watched was really, really heated, and it was very, it was very eye-opening even, even to me, you know, to sort of how openly and actively people can just go out and challenge each other because, you know, the Chinese culture mandates that we be humble and, you know, deferential and, and polite, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the popular television um, programs really have changed the debate culture, the kind of the ways that people talk about politics, the way that people discuss politics, and the development of new political di uh, discourses uh, to a substantial extent. Mm -hmm. but I, I think I would, uh, I agree with that, and I, I would sort of further point to actually your research, Ning, that, that shows that one of the, the more important locations for this kind of uh, discourse is actually online, it's on the internet. Um, so television, there are occasionally elites who talk about foreign policy and there are all the entertainment programs that I agree with you generate a culture that's more perhaps uh, opinionated, right? Um, but the, the space in which you hear the most about foreign policy and especially the space in which nationalist opinion, you know, whether it's anti-Japanese or anti-American or whatever the context mm -hmm. is, is usually the internet. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it really is just an incredibly democratic space, actually. When it comes to nationalism, there is a lot of freedom. And the government is in a kind of cat and mouse game to a certain extent um, in terms of censoring some of those uh, sentiments. And I know you'll be talking about that next mm -hmm. week when mm -hmm. you discuss social media issues. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so we've heard a little bit about uh, this dispute with Japan, and we've mentioned uh, foreign policy perhaps related to the U.S., but when you think of something like Syria, what's happening in Syria, and you listen to American political debates about what, what should be done, uh, uh, of course there are lots of different opinions, but um, you come to the U.N., and, uh, and China is, is at present anyway not, not in the same position that the U.S. is in terms of some of its feelings about uh, this current problem in the Middle East. Uh, do Chinese people talk about in, in social media spaces? Are they talking about what should happen with Syria? Are, are the Chinese people engaged in some of these other regional dis disputes um, around the world? I think, I, I personally think we're all pretty narcissistic. So we think about our own countries yeah. and yeah. we tend to interpret the behaviors of other countries mm -hmm. um, in terms of uh, our own frameworks. Mm -hmm. So my guess is most Chinese are not paying too much attention, um, but when they do look at it, uh, they'll see it through the framework of uh, the way they understand their past encounter uh, with Western imperialism. Yeah. So they'll, they'll believe that 
they'll tend to believe that uh, you know America is just butting its its uh, self into the Middle East, or perhaps even trying to prevent China from having access uh, to the oil and other energy resources that it needs to develop. Um, so there'll be a natural tendency to sort of view it through the prism of the self. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to add that um, I think in terms, to, to answer your question, I think there is a difference between the, 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 the American's worldview and the Chinese worldview. America is the he uh, hegemonic power. There's no question about that. And the US has been playing this clearly leadership role in international affairs for decades, especially after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So, uh, you know, during these decades, I, I think American, the American intellectuals, uh, liberals, and the public have acquired this taste to know everything. They're, you know, they, they think in some ways, sometimes I feel it, it is in their right to know, and they should know. They have this obligation to, to know. Um, you know, while we talk about the rise of China, China is not there yet. So I, I haven't done research on that, so, but, but my sort of impression is that I agree with Peter that uh, the Chinese public would be much more sort of tuned in to those international affairs that directly impact them mm -hmm. uh, than, you know, something that from a different perspective we may think may be related to them, but it's not really directly tied into their, their everyday. Life. I agree with Peter in the sense that I think when they do think about things outside of their daily lives, outside of disputes in their region, I think they sort of use a frame that's comfortable that comes to mind, and that is this idea of sort of how, what, what is America's role in all of this? And so I think this sense of China itself not getting sort of the national respect it deserves, uh, as well as sort of the idea of sort of the U.S. trying to maintain its hegemony over the world, mm -hmm. sort of as a frame it uses when it thinks about policies like Syria, and it sort of sees mm -hmm. the U.S thinking about intervention, it thinks about sort of US intervening in Iraq and other countries. And so uh, I think it, that's the type of frame that gets used when they don't have a lot of proximate information about that type of mm -hmm. issue. You know, a couple of years ago, Brian, you and Wenfang were on another discussion like this. And the question, you were both debating, you each took a different side of the argument for the sake of argument. And the question was, is China a threat, looking from the US perspective? Now, in uh, our earlier program, uh, Wenfang Tang, um, mentioned this polling in China uh, where uh, what's the greatest threat to uh, China and Chinese response would be overwhelmingly the U.S. Are US, the U.S. and China in that sort of uh, threat relationship with one another in your view? Is, is it in the hands of the U.S. to stop China from becoming what it wants to become or well, vice versa? So I will say, the, I mean, uh, the U.S. government is very concerned about Chinese public opinion about the U.S. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's numerous congressional hearings and efforts by the U.S. to engage in broader public diplomacy with China. Uh, in fact, you know, there's a lot of concern about the, from the U.S.'s side, about China not letting the U.S. engage in public diplomacy as much as it would, including setting up, so in the Iowa City, we have Confucius Center. Uh, in, in China, there are only five American centers limited by the Chinese government. Uh, and so it is a concern. I mean, the China, U.S. government is concerned about being perceived in a negative light uh, by the Chinese public. And as, as some of my other colleagues can talk about, I mean, there, you do see that in surveys, that there's variation by characteristics of the individual. But in general, there is some concern about threat from the United States. Mm -hmm. this, this is actually, to me, one of the more uh, maybe almost humorous aspects of commonality in U.S.-China relations, because 
Americans are always shocked to hear that Chinese might, might find American behaviors threatening. Um, and yet, Chinese are also shocked when they find that other nations find China's behavior threatening. Hmm. It's just a natural social psychological tendency that we believe the groups to which we identify are benign. Mm -hmm. And that if others are interpreting it otherwise, it's because they have malign intentions. <laughs> um, to me, it's just natural. I mean, these are the two biggest players in terms of states uh, in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And we are inherently threatening. Mm -hmm. and yet we are so blind to that. In fact, we are purposefully blind to that, willfully blind to that. Yeah. I'd like to, to add to that. Uh, my colleagues here have mentioned a couple of times already of the concept of me uh, mental framework uh, that people use to, uh, to think about themselves and their country and so forth and so on. And, and everybody do uh, does that, right? So I think as scholars, uh, our research can shed light on why do people think uh, you know, of the US, let's say, in certain ways? And, and why do the Chinese see themselves in certain ways? And uh, ju just very bri briefly, um, my, I, in my research, I found that let, let's uh, imagine an, an abstract Chinese mind, right? And there's two kinds of uh, sources, input, we can actually tune. So one kind of source is, you know, things that are happening, news, facts, blah, blah, blah. And the other source of the input to this mind is Chinese collective me uh, memory, uh, its recent hi uh, history, this, you know, this, this psychological burden of overcoming and coming out of this 100 years of humiliation and so forth and so on. So what I found is when the, the Chinese look outside into the world, let's say what the US is doing, what Japan is doing, they tune up the information tuner. So they use more facts, more news items, and so forth and so on to, to inform them, themselves. But when they think about how well they are doing, their country is doing, their government is doing, they are doing as a people to deal with all this, they tune up the mental, uh, they tune up the collective memory, the historical frame, and so forth and so on. So nobody can escape hi uh, history, right? And we are all products of our time and where we are and part of our, our world. So I think it's um, uh, while, you know, so, some of us may understand the rise of Chinese nationalism as, as a sort of as, as a product of China's, you know, rise, increase of China's hard power and soft power over the world, I sort of see that as sort of really uh, an outcome of this critical assessment um, based on their, their memory of their, their recent past. Mm -hmm. Well, um, looking at, at the uh, transition over these last, I guess, 20 years or so, perhaps a little more than that, into a very uh, sort of market-based uh, economy and you know, an incredible economic engine and so on, so so much improvement in the daily lives of many people in China, um, you, you can see that that would, uh, one's national pride might might lift tremendously there. I think in the, in the US, there's still many people my age and older who, who live with a label communist China. You know, it kind of doesn't ever go away if that's, that's uh, what you lived with. Within the older generation in China, uh, what kind of reflection is, to the, is there to their communist past and to are we better off now than we were then? Peter. I think that's a, a very astute observation. And in fact, the public opinion uh, surveys that I've done in China and the US support that. 
Uh, older Americans are more likely uh, to view China in a, in a more negative light. Um, and I don't, I don't have any doubt that if I explored that further, it would be because of the Cold War legacy. Um, and older Chinese also, I think, uh, because of the Cold War, tend to have a more uh, negative view of the outside world in general, and the US in particular. And again, it's a legacy of the Cold War. Let's not forget that the, the Korean War was not that long ago, mm -hmm. and we were at direct, in direct conflict. Mm -hmm. um, and while the Korean War is the forgotten war in the United States, um, it is absolutely central to Chinese national identity today. If you talk to a mainland Chinese person, they will be unequivocal that China won the Korean War. Mm -hmm. Yet, I think if you spoke to most Americans, they would say, well, it kind of ended up where it started, and at least we saved the South Koreans from being driven off the Korean Peninsula. So they're very different views of the war, but the war means much more for, for Chinese today than it does for Americans. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I'll come back to you, Brian. What do you see as the biggest, uh, uh, the most dominant foreign policy kinds of uh, issues that the public is currently thinking about, talking about in, in China? So, I mean, in China, I think there are, you know, again, like local issues are always very important. In terms of foreign policy, I mean, I can think this idea of, it's both, uh, as everyone's talked about, this idea of China's role in the world. I mean, China's, you know, grown tremendously economically, as, as, we've talk, as many people know. Uh, its place in the world, its role of its currency in particular, has been central in, in Asia. And so I think, you know, this sort of frame of their role in the world is becoming important, and particularly how that relates to other Asian countries and relative to the United States. I think those are, those are two very important themes that are prominent in the minds of most Chinese. And prominent now in the minds of Americans too with this, <laughs> with this debt issue we have now. It, it, many people are becoming aware that uh, if China were to say, you know what, <laughs> we're not so interested in, in lending to you, this, this could be an issue for the United States. We have, we have ties in other parts of the world that um, sometimes I think at least on, on an average citizen's level, we don't really understand uh, who, who helps to support the economy that we have here and um, some necessary compromises sometimes. I'm not a political economist, but I, I do think that there's fairly widespread misunderstanding in the United States about the implications of the economic interdependence mm -hmm. between China and the United States. I think the thought is that we, we owe them money and therefore they have leverage over us. <laughs> um, and if we only owed them 10 bucks mm -hmm. or 50 bucks, that would be true. Mm -hmm. But we owe them a lot more than that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so in many ways, the, 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 levers of, uh, the leverage is completely opposite. Um, we, we hold all the levers. If you think about the fact that um, they hold so many treasury bills, and yet we're the ones who make decisions about the value of the US dollar, you know, the Chinese are, are helpless to, to essentially maintain the value of their yeah. their reserves. Um, so I like to, to talk about it as the economic relationship is so interdependent that it's mutually assured economic destruction. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so it's actually a stabilizing force mm -hmm. overall yeah. in terms of the actual workings. Now, it, it may be destabilizing in terms of generating fear, which I think is based on misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. There's, especially in America, a lot of worry about the debt and the implications that has. And, maybe contributes to feelings that China threatens America, mm -hmm. I think they're misplaced. And I think actually the economic interdependence should be 
a source of stability in the relationship? Well, again, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, um, on the other hand, I, I think the, from my point of view, you know, as a, as a Chinese who lives in America, it, it seems to me as though the, the financial responsibilities you know, that the American government carries for those debts are, are used as, as, as leverages for, for domestic politics. I mean, the government was on the fringe of default on all their debts to everybody for how long? For about a month or so, mm -hmm. half a month or so. And, and, I, and, uh, and then at the same time, the Americans were not very happy that the Chinese uh, pre president or prime minister uh, or I think actually the, the farm minister sort of, you know, scolded America for, you know, please take up your financial responsibility and, and so forth and so on. So um, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think I quite agree with, with you, Peter, that these economies are so intertwined mm -hmm. um, that um, therefore these arguments really are most valid on the rhetoric le uh, level. Um, I, I, I don't think they're as meaningful, well, I'm not a political economist either, as they may sound. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I think we've come to the end of uh, the time we have, but I'm so grateful you could all join us. Peter Gries, Brian Lai, and Ning Zhang, thank you. Uh, you've been listening to the third installment of a four-part series called The Rise of Public Opinion in China. The full series and all World Canvas programming can be found on the Hawkeye Network, on iTunes, KRUI, and on the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. So thank you for being with us for tonight's program, and join us next week when we'll be discussing public opinion and social media in China. For UI International Programs, the Hawkeye Network, the Pentecost Museums, and KRUI, I'm Joan Kerr. See you next time. Good night. Hello and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. World Canvas is coming to you from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum on the campus of the University of Iowa and we're very happy to have you with us tonight. This is the final program in our four-part series on the rise of public opinion in China. We're exploring the influence of public opinion on political reform, political trust, foreign policy and public discourse. Earlier segments of the series have addressed political reform, trust in governmental authority, and foreign policy. And tonight we're going to take a look at the effects of public opinion on public discourse, concentrating particularly on the new and ever-expanding world of social media. We have a wonderful panel joining us tonight, and I'll introduce them. Just to my left is Judy Pollenbaum, professor in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication here at the University of Iowa. Thank you, Judy, for being with us. Thanks for having us. Oh, pleasure. And next to her is Shanwei Wu, graduate student here at the University of Iowa, also in the um, School of Journalism and Mass Communication. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh -huh. And at the far end, we have Lu Shen. Nice to see you, Lu Shen. Um, an undergraduate student, also in journalism here at the University of Iowa. So this is going to be a fun topic. I think all of us like to uh, learn about uh, how people in other parts of the world from our own um, communicate. And of course, we can look at uh, newspapers. We can look at television, all kinds of media. And then especially tonight, I'd like to talk a little bit about social media, as we have in some earlier segments of this program. I think there's nobody who could better introduce us to that whole range of communication than you, Judy. So uh, let me ask you to describe the media landscape in China. Well, I guess the best way to describe it is vast and variegated. Um, 
There was a time when the scope of um, media outlets and information was um, rather narrow. There, were, there have been periods in the past when the content has been very homogeneous. But um, since the late 70s, and particularly since the early 90s, there's been an explosion of all kinds of media and all kinds of genres. Um, and uh, so it, it's really hard to generalize about the media in China now. Um, of course, a vast proportion of it is entertainment media, educational media, um, background media, you know, so um, a great deal of people's media consumption is not explicitly political, mm -hmm. although um, the political scientists, uh, which we're not, probably would say everything is political, <laughs> which, which I think I agree with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, help us understand, uh, there, there are some sources of uh, news that are official government sources of news or, or television channels that are sponsored by the national government? And then are there also some commercial or non-governmental channels? Well, it's very hard to pigeonhole um, media outlets because uh, theoretically there is no independent media in China. Um, all media outlets are accountable in some way um, to a government agency and ultimately through the propaganda department um, and propaganda bureaus at various levels and so forth. Um, but media have varying degrees of autonomy. Um, they have different roles. Uh, certain things are expected of newspapers that are explicitly official Communist Party organs. Other things are expected of newspapers that maybe are um, municipal or evening papers or um, specialized papers. Um, and the, uh, the degree of control over media outlets um, varies tremendously by time, place, circumstance, personalities, um, and can be unpredictable. It can change over time. Uh, and so the, the whole idea of censorship is much more complicated than that, that simple word um, mm. might imply. Well, you're a, a journalist with a, a lot of experience with various um, uh, parts of the world and the ways journalism operates. Uh, but I know China is, is a specialty for you. Um, you look at, at the way um, Journalists operate here in the United States, and I, we, we tend to think that you know, sort of anything goes. You can do whatever you want to do because we're not, we're not um, censored by the government. People may disapprove, but there's no real censorship. First of all, is that way too simplistic and not true at all of our own system? And in the second place, uh, how how does one judge something like censorship when you look at China? Well, of course, you know yourself. It's way too <laughs> simplistic. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is an interesting finding across uh, systems and countries and contexts that is um, media accounts uh, 
in any given country tend to overall, there may be exceptions, but overall reflect the foreign policy positions of the government. And that holds for the United States, go figure. So there are many factors beyond um, overt management of media that go into uh, selecting, covering, and crafting media accounts and cultural understandings, expectations, stereotypes, narrative tropes, all sorts of things go into the way Americans mm -hmm. cover news. Um, in China, you have this mixture of all the, the usual, you know, time constraints on media and uh, certain news values and sometimes political interference, um, often kind of vague general directives about things that should or shouldn't be covered or emphasized. Um, that are filtered down, sometimes in documents, sometimes verbally. Uh, there, there's a socialization process, so journalists kind of know what they're expected to do and what they're expected not to do. Bold journalists in China are constantly testing and, and sort of creating coalitions to, to foster the kind of journalism they want to do. Um, so it's, it's again, a, a really complex mm -hmm. picture. Well, yes, please. I just please. want to jump in here about the issue about censorship. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing in the sense that it actually uh, spawned a lot of creativity in the way people express their opinions. Because um, in China, everybody knows there are government censorship. And that's why people figure out creative ways to uh, go around that censorship, and they use kind of pictures, uh, innuendos, sarcasm. Um, they make up new words, new terms, new idioms um, to express their opinion. And I think that is a really positive uh, development um, that came out of government censoring um, public opinion. So we don't, I don't think we should just look at censorship and, oh, it's a monster. Everybody is trying to get us. But it's actually fostering a lot of good things that's um, based on public's intelligence. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I, I see you nodding. Uh, you. Yeah, I think it's really, uh, uh, people are really forced to be creative in this way. I remember that um, after Xi Jinping visited uh, America last year, um, people started calling him uh, Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> uh, because a picture of him uh, walking with President Obama just looks like a picture um, of Winnie the Pooh walking with uh, Tigger. So people, people started calling him Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> I don't know if that term is blocked now, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> and one thing, new media and the rise of the internet and the, the sort of um, the inevitability of information everywhere has done is it's actually made the censorship apparatus more transparent. People mm -hmm. are totally conscious of it really? and, and um, constantly toying with it. Yeah. And I think the entertainment aspect as well is really important in 
in a way that censorship plays into public opinion because sometimes you can watch a piece of news article, pick out like one a couple of keywords and make fun of the entire news segment and it becomes something to make fun of the system as well. So uh, I'm sure many of you know about the CCTV segment um, that's asking people, are you happy in China? And uh, we all know that Fuma uh, is the same as um, what is your last name. And there is an old guy that says, uh, my last name is Liu or something. Anyway, so that kind of becomes like a, a running joke among um, Chinese social media and um, to just make fun of the idiocracy of this kind of uh, state-controlled media. Uh, yeah, uh, so, okay, so we've kind of talked a little bit about state control, censorship, and so on, and the ways to get around censorship, but give us an idea of what uh, young people, people your age, are doing on social media. We've heard about Renren, Weibo, and WeChat is another that I know is hugely popular there, which allow you really to do just about anything whenever you're near, uh, you know, whenever you're in a, in a city that's wired up and you can, um, get access through your little phone, uh, it, it's incredible how much people are attached to their devices in Beijing, at least, uh, from my own experience. Um, what, are you, what are you doing on social media all the time? Trade gossip. Trade gossip, yeah. We share news. Yeah. We share our moments in our lives. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's very common that before, before we start eating, Everybody has to take a picture of the food. <laughs> <laughs> and then we post it online. <laughs> yeah, our food is like awesome. <laughs> so, um, I think uh, the kind of entertainmentization of media is seeped through in every uh, single aspect of our daily lives. And I don't know if you noticed, but young people don't really read the news. Now here too, I teach an undergrad class of 300 people and they're dead when we talk about news making. But when we talk about Gossip Girls and uh, Real Housewives, they are instantly <laughs> alive. So same in China, we don't really like to talk about serious stuff like uh, Xi Jinping or uh, the government, uh, not a protest, we don't really care about that. I think um, even though there are some political news that gets talked about by young people, um, it's often goes the peripheral route rather than the more direct, um, you know, there's a central meeting in the party or that kind of thing. It's more like um, maybe uh, a police officer beat up a little uh, merchant on the street and that became a huge news. And police officer becomes the stand-in for the government system as a whole, whereas the merchant is the stand-in for everybody who are the little people who doesn't get a voice. And that kind of news actually gets more traction than the actual political, hardcore, boring stuff. And, and what about in, in the last segment of this program, we were talking about foreign policy, for example. Is there much discussion about what's happening outside China on, among your friend groups? Maybe not my friend groups at my age, but older people, mm -hmm. or people older than me, mm -hmm. the people that I follow. Yeah. <laughs> we obviously have very different friend groups, because my friends all talk about the US um, and Japan, because that's what I'm focusing on. But I'm focusing more on popular culture. So it's really interesting the dynamics that goes on when things like the anti-Japanese protest happens and the people who are fans of the Japanese culture, they react in a, re in a way that is really um, contradictory with their own interests because um, 
on the one hand, they love Japanese culture. On the other hand, they're still Chinese. They're really conscious of the fact that Japanese are trying to take advantage of um, China. So they are standing in a very strange territory when it comes to foreign um, affairs because uh, it's the clash between two different social mm -hmm. circles. Mm -hmm. You know, a couple of times there has been mention of the clash between China and Japan. I wonder if you could just very briefly summarize some of the most recent um, uh, incidents. What, for an American who doesn't really know what, what is currently happening in public opinion um, between Japan and China, could you fill us in? Um, the one of the things I've noticed recently is the close down of the Weibo from um, Asahi News, Zhaoru uh, Xinwen. Um, they closed down one day out of, without notice. We don't know why. And it's really strange because the, that media is actually very pro-China. So um, people don't know why it is suddenly shut down. But the Chinese side is back up now, but the Weibo is not yet back up. So that's what, I don't know if it's one of the backlashes mm -hmm. of the anti-Japanese thing or not. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. There really is a history, and it, mm -hmm. it's... Um, very directly related to World War II and yeah, the fact that yeah. Japan invaded China. And um, the carryover from that is, mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. very, very strong. Mm -hmm. And a lot of Americans don't realize that, you know, that whole Asia and particularly China part of World War II, particularly young Americans, yeah. um, and also don't realize that Russia and China were, the Soviet Union and China were our allies. Mm -hmm. Whereas kind of the memory of that and the memory that's passed down from parents to children and in schools is quite strong. So some of the things that elicit um, very strong backlashes have to do with Japanese textbooks and accounts about World War II and, and paying homage to martyrs, Japanese martyrs of World mm -hmm. War II and the behavior of Japanese politicians, um, and it, it just keeps coming up in China. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I think, Lou, I'm going to ask you a question about, you, you wrote a wonderful series of articles that appeared in the Daily Iowan last week or the week before, uh, really, really extraordinary, three very long, comprehensive articles. And um, I should ask you to describe what you were trying to talk about within those articles, but you were discussing things like freedom. What does freedom mean? What does home mean to you? Um, uh, tell me something about what you learned about fellow Chinese students here on campus when you were asking them about their feelings about home, freedom, and so on. Mm, I think every study abroad student feels um, that they are sort of alienated to home um, after they have been in the States for a long time. Um, and about freedom, I think to us, it's um, it's like the green light across the bay of uh, Gatesby's house um, before we, come, we came to the United States. After we came here, we, I think we tend to uh, um, become more cynical. Mm -hmm. Meaning that some of the things that you thought would be uh, the case in the United States were not things you experienced? Um, Maybe United States is just it's 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 not as um, it's not like a paradise that we mm -hmm. thought before we came. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I spent part of this year and last year teaching in Hong Kong, um, and.
then had some classes that were primarily mainland students at the master's level. And um, Hong Kong doesn't, um, doesn't have firewalls around the internet like um, the mainland does. And so these young people came to Hong Kong and could immediately join Facebook and access whatever they wanted. And they said, well, for a couple of weeks it was really cool. And then it was like, <laughs> ah. <laughs> There, there's really not that much to look at. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and for you, Shen uh, Wei, um, what is the principal area of research that you're undertaking for your PhD? Um, I'm doing fandom studies. Um, right now, I'm focusing on animation, um, manga, and uh, games. So uh, in that area, we actually see a lot of um, what I talked about, the kind of creative um, words, expressions came out of that area and spread into the more mainstream culture. So um, that's why I'm trying to study that um, mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah, sure. And, and has your experience here in the US uh, been what you expected before you came, would you say? Well, I came here, um, <laughs> I actually went to Canada 10 years ago, so it's not nothing new to me. Canada and US are not that different. Um, but um, I guess what I found in the US, I guess, is really very similar to China, where we have a two-party system in the US. In China, um, in terms of public opinion in general, about the government, about foreign affairs overall, there's also two kinds of ways people express in general. I'm talking very, very generalized terms. So one is the one that's pro-government nationalist. The other is more like um, Western intellectuals that's um, pro the US. So I don't, in, in, in a sense, it's actually very similar, the kind of opinions expressed in the Chinese um, social media sphere and US social media sphere as well. Yeah. Yeah, is um, the notion of free speech the same in China as what we think of as free speech here in the US, Judy? Well, we have a, a very kind of codified view of free speech because we have our First Amendment and we have our, you know, the founding fathers who made sure to enshrine that, um, and it's sort of a holy grail for journalism. Um, I think in China there's a, a sort of sense of abandon about speech where um, as long as you don't go out in the middle of the street and condemn your nation's <laughs> leaders, you know, you can, you can say anything you want to friends and family and even to strangers on the bus and um, <laughs> it's, um, it's kind of a no-holds-barred atmosphere. Um, plus there's a, a, a very vibrant sort of expressive scene or many scenes throughout China. Um, my older son is a jazz musician living and working and playing and teaching in Beijing. And we communicate by WeChat, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I guess it was this past spring festival, the Lunar New Year, which is the biggest Chinese holiday. Um, one of China's most famous rock musician, Cui Jian, who had been touring and was still just as famous, but had been out of the official picture for a while, was um, on the Beijing TV Spring Festival Gala. Um, and so there's a kind of insider culture and outsider culture, but 
the outsider cultures occasionally come into the official culture, and, and it's very blurry, and there's a lot of variety available, yeah. and, and people can really indulge their own interests in all kinds of ways. Do you feel that, that um, young people, people maybe under 30 or so, are strongly engaged in the political discussions about China's future and all of that? I mean, do you feel that this is a time of sort of activism among China's youth or, or no? I guess it depends on how you define activism. We are very vocal about certain things and not very vocal about other things. So um, we're very vocal when a celebrity gets pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> when the party <laughs> congress meet. So <laughs> there's different ways people are active uh, on the social media. And I, sure. I don't necessarily think entertainment media is less important than political activism. Yeah. And um, people can have their very strong opinions about celebrities as well. So I think uh, at least we're moving in the right direction in terms of the way people are expressing themselves. Mm -hmm. um, one, one of the students that I interviewed this summer Mm, she actually told me that her 22nd birthday, birthday wish was um, China can become more democratic. Hmm. And it's, well, there are some kinds of young people over in, in, there in China, so I, I, I don't think, uh, and I think they're um, more willing to express themselves online, mm -hmm. not uh, here. They don't yeah. have so much uh, fear of, being censored or something. Yeah. They're more outspoken. Yeah. Wow, it's been such a pleasure to have you all, all here for this uh, discussion tonight about social media and uh, public discourse in China. Thank you, so Lu Shen and Shen Wei Wu and Judy Palmbaum. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the final installment of our four-part series on the rise of public opinion in China. The entire series and all World Canvas programming can be found on the Hawkeye Network, on iTunes, KRUI, and on the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. So thank you for being with us tonight, and join us next time when our topic will be the social impact of sustainability.